Hello everyone, welcome to That Food Podcast. My name's Stu and I'm joined as always by my good friend Matt. Matt, how are you doing this week? Body da, Stu. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> very, very good start to the pod. <laughs> we're trying Welsh. a few bits, <laughs> along with a bit of Welsh, we're also trying a few techie things in the background. So already we've had my internet drop out, we've had dueling voices for both of us across our different softwares that we're using at the moment but hopefully we're going to come out of this with a with a half decent podcast i'm sure we will um yeah so the reason i greeted you in welsh today obviously we've been uh making a welsh broth recipe uh call which um we'll be chatting about more later obviously but it's true interestingly i found out this week that i've actually been pronouncing call incorrectly it's uh apparently cowl uh, so apologies, oh, okay. to, yeah. So apologies to any Welsh people I may have offended so far in the making of this podcast. Well, we will be discussing our cowl adventures uh, later today. Uh, but we want to start off by saying thank you very much to everyone who has been listening to our podcast. We've seen our numbers, especially at the weekends, had a massive jump. Yeah. Um, on Saturday and Sunday that we saw. Those of you who've engaged with us across our social media platforms at That Food Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, it's been great to have you guys join us and get involved. Um, if you do follow us on those social media platforms, you would have seen some of the uh, the bits we've been cooking this week. So, Matt, do you want to run through what's been in the Huntley household this week? Uh, yeah, I will indeed. So, this week has been... I've done quite a few things this week. Uh, my favourite one is, which I want to mention, I've learnt how to make coconut rice in a rice cooker which was a bit of a revelation this week. So I think I mentioned in the first part that my sister, Kelleen, uh, she bought me a rice cooker for Christmas time, along with the Bosch Boys book as well, uh, which we used to make not just rice, obviously, but we actually put uh, quinoa in there as well. But this week I discovered how to make coconut rice. Uh, really simple. You just add a scoop of rice, uh, a scoop of water, a scoop of coconut milk, uh, a couple of teaspoons of desiccated coconut and you can add some brown sugar in as well to sweeten it up uh, really simple really really easy to make and very tasty as well so we haven't had it with a curry yet but i'd imagine it'd go really well with a nice thai curry or something like or something similar um also made or remade uh, the uh bosch classic shepherd's pie as well but with a bit of a twist on it uh, I used um, black beans instead of mushrooms. So rather than mincing the mushrooms as we did for our first episode, I actually minced some black beans and it kind of had the same effect, same texture, was able to absorb all the flavours, much like the mushrooms. But as you know, I'm not a massive mushroom fan. I was able to tolerate it when it's cooked into the dish, but I actually found this to be a bit more to my liking. So I really enjoyed that. How about you, Stu? Have you had any kitchen adventures this week? Well, we've had um, a revisit to our favourite dessert, the Angel Delight. Again, if you've seen us on our Twitter, that I discovered the dinosaur special Angel Delight, which is three layers of Angel Delight, chocolate, mint, and then a bit of dream topping on top with some dinosaur sprinkles. So I made that with my daughter um, and my wife at the weekend. Again, this isn't exactly culinary expertise, mixing a bit of milk, getting a you know mixer out, but she had a great time doing it and um, we also made some bread from scratch to go with the cow uh, this week nice. which was again a good adventure and it just gets my daughter Harriet in the kitchen she's four later this month 
and the fact she can already crack eggs better than me and my wife <laughs> I- into into bowls when making anything, I thought it's a good start. So get her into bread making. Um, she t- she tired a bit with me cracking the whip and making her knead the dough for ten minutes. Oh, okay. But I, but I told her to power through. We don't quit in this household. As I sat there <laughs> with a drink, watching her. <laughs> Uh, it's always nice to hear about Harriet in the kitchen and how she's getting on with her little cooking adventures. So I love that. Um, but interesting, you should mention bread, actually, Stu, because I think before we press on to the podcast, I actually do have a uh, a quick quibble to raise with you again <laughs> this week. Oh, good. <laughs> what have I done wrong this week? Well, so this week involves my attempt to make homemade bread for the first time uh, to go along with the cowl that we made. So I used a recipe from the BBC Good Food website and it was very easy to follow. It involved just five ingredients, flour, yeast, olive oil, salt, water, so no surprises so far. Um, I was methodically following the recipe, making it as per the method allowed, uh, as per the method allowing it to rest at the allocated times. It was quite frankly text book bread making okay so I was enjoying the process uh, so much so in fact that I was dreaming of opening my own bakery one day I <laughs> I even had some name ideas would you like to hear some name ideas Stu that I've got here oh yes please okay yes, please. so I just got I've actually got them in a I've, sorry I got a piece of paper here I've actually got them in a uh, crumpled up bit of paper in my pocket so I'm just going to read them out for you okay so Firstly, I drew back on some inspiration that uh, came to me from my uh, days as a martial arts master. Uh, I don't know if you know about this, Stu. Um, but, so I came up with uh, Taekwondo. Um, which <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but I, th- I thought, okay, that's going to be a bit too aggressive, probably for the Kent, uh, Kent countryside. So I put that to one side. So then I opted for uh, uh, loafing around. Um, so uh, loafing around. But I thought it might sound a bit lazy, and as the old saying goes, no one likes a lazy baker, right, Stu? Very true. Very true. <laughs> so, so last, lastly, then I came up with, um, and I actually reflected upon my early days, growing up amongst the New York rap scene in the nineteen eighties, and uh, I, <laughs> what? Because there was a bit, there was a big rap scene growing up where you came from. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so anyway, I went with uh, the Yeasty Boys, um, but <laughs> but unless you're uh, keen to go in partnership with me on this one, Stu, then uh, I, I thought this, the idea of a singular Yeasty Boy might put some people off, potentially. <laughs> so any favourites well, there so far, Tax? I mean, I mean, Yeasty Boys is is always quite good fun. It's up. I mean, anything with. I'm assuming with a Z to keep that hip hop lifestyle going. Of course, with a Z. Yes, it's uh, yeah. I've actually written it down with a Z and everything, Stu. So yeah, yeah. No need to ask that. Come on. Um. <laughs> However, am I am I willing to commit based on what is about to by the sound of things be a potential issue with your baking skills? Well, I'm just about to get there. So anyway, I. I put Yeasty Boys to one side and I actually settled on uh, Matt's quality bloomers. I, I, I even came up with a tagline, which was, our food is really crummy. So I thought that would look good on a T-shirt. Um, anyway, my, my dreams of opening a bakery were jogging along nicely. And as I mentioned earlier, 
you have to allow the dough to rest or prove uh, twice. The uh, first time went fine. After mixing the ingredients together, I put the dough ball into a large bowl, covered it over and allowed it to rest for an hour. No problem. Textbook bread making. Okay, so then uh, after letting the dough prove and subsequently kneading it for a second time, the instructions are as follows. So I'll read this out. Place the ball of dough onto a tray covered with baking parchment to prove for a further hour. Simple. No problem, textbook bread making. Okay, so 30 minutes have passed. So I thought I'd be smart and get ahead of the game somewhat. Now, our oven takes a while to reach temperature. So with half an hour to go until my dough uh, would be finished proving, I turned the oven on to allow it to reach the desired 200 degrees required to bake my perfectly proved dough. I was flying. I was busy in the front room planning the grand opening of Matt's Quality Bloomers on my laptop. Uh, so another 30 minutes passed and it was time to bake my perfectly prepared dough. So I completed my purchase of the domain name www.mattsqualitybloomers.com and have headed back into the kitchen. Now, it's true, this is where my hopes and dreams were dashed, my friend. So do you have any idea at this point where I may have stored the aforementioned dough? I mean, had you accidentally already put it into the oven? I put it into the oven. The, no! the oven <laughs> that was now 200 degrees centigrade and was harboring what was now a part proved, part cooked amalgamation of dough and baked bread. My efforts to save the situation by simply leaving it in the oven for a further 30 minutes, which was the allocated cooking time, were unsuccessful. <laughs> it actually looked okay on the outside, but the middle was like wall filler. So you pull it apart and you try to cut it and it's just, yeah, it's like putty. Anyway, Stu, as the person who provided me with said bread recipe in the first place, I would like to thank you for escalating and subsequently quickly dashing my hopes and dreams of one day opening Matt's quality bloomers. Well, it's funny you should mention uh, this bread recipe also being a very simple bread recipe with five ingredients. See, now, obviously, um, I was baking with a three-year-old, and some people think baking with a three-year-old is quite stressful. I don't mind the mess because you can always clear it up. It's not a problem. However, my issue this week has been with my cat. Good old Taffy. <laughs> Taffy, yep. And uh, we've also recently gained a new friend in the garden who my daughter has affectionately named White Boots, who seems uh. to be a neighbouring cat who likes to come over and play. Well, when we were getting ready to do the recipe, White Boots... A very brazen cat tried to enter Taffy's kingdom and all hell broke loose. So I had to go and sort out a cat fight. Oh no, okay. Which therefore led me to forgetting to add in one of the five ingredients into my bread. Which was uh, the oil. Oh, the oil, okay. Mm. So as I was trying to explain to Harriet how to knock back bread after the first proof, I said, oh, look, here's the video of how to do it. And as the, uh, the instructional video said, so pour in the water, pour in the oil. At that moment, I thought, oh, no. But still, 
I stayed committed. I baked the bread without oil and genuinely delicious. Really, okay. really happy with it. But Good. it just goes to show, I mean, five ingredients. I therefore missed 20% of the ingredients by being distracted. <laughs> Absolute nightmare. Now, I think we've hopefully proven that we're okay at cooking proven. and baking. Well, good. Wee. Very good. <laughs> uh, intentional pun there. Um, we have proven that we are okay in the kitchen, I think. I hope. Um, but it seems like this fairly simple task, or what should be a simple task, has thrown us off somewhat. Um, just going back to your... Was it... Uh, what's, the, what's the terminology used again when you get to the second... Knocking it back. Knocking it back. What was your process for that? Because I read the instructions and it said about punching the dough. So I literally punched the dough. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Not 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 like full force if you're trying to, <laughs> you know, KO the dough. But a case of so definitely sort of giving just to take, knock the air out of it, knocking it back. And then you can do it in the bowl. I took it out of the bowl because I was fearful of my daughter and her Hulk-like strength smashing my, <laughs> my glass bowl. But yeah, it's, it's literally beating the tar out of the dough. Oh, no. It's Take quite, the air out. It's quite therapeutic at that point. So I was feeling good then. And then disaster struck. <laughs> I mean, some would argue you tried to put the bread in the oven for an, to uh, enhance the proving. If it was cold in your house, maybe that was the, the back of the brain logic. Behind well, it. well, what it was is because Amy and I were talking about on Great British Bake Off when they have proving drawers. So they have the, have you seen this? They have like the yeah, little drawers. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they have the drawers where they put the, the dough in, allow it to prove in there. Uh, I'm not sure the science behind it. Maybe like you said, it's warmer in there, I guess. Um, and we had that conversation. I was like, hmm, I'm going to be really smart here. I'm going to put it in the oven and it's going to be my, like my proving drawer. <laughs> <laughs> but well, that backfired. Well, it's funny that we've had bread disasters uh, because that leads us nicely into food in the news uh, for this week. And we, we mentioned last week when we we're looking at um, our, the food wastage and sort of the campaign that was run by Love Food, Hate Waste. And then we've uh, and this food news is especially attributable to you because you discovered these guys online. It's a company called Earth and Wheat. Uh, they're a new company who are launching on the 12th of March, so a couple of days away from when we release this podcast. And they are the first wonky fresh bread box that's going to help save our planet. So essentially what these guys do, direct from UK bakeries, you can select a plan uh, of the amount of bread that you, you wish, and they deliver all the wonky loaves that the supermarkets, the restaurants do not want. And therefore, none of these items from these big UK bakeries go to waste as a view to try and start saving these millions and millions of slices of bread that go missing every single day. So I thought this was such, such a good idea. Again, guys, if you want to go and check this out, it's earthandwheat.com. They're across all the social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They go live on the 12th. And I was saying to my wife this morning that this is something, you know, we've got enough space in our freezer. We like bread. We like cooking with bread. We like having it with soups, sandwiches. Hell, you could even make a really, really nice bread and butter pudding out of it. It's a versatile thing to do. Just grind it down to breadcrumbs. So we're going to sign up for this uh, for our first one on the 12th of March just to see where it goes. And also, it's just going to save waste and it's just going to be something different to do. Great. Brilliant idea. Yeah, they were in touch with us during the week on Twitter and they seem like really nice guys. So brilliant that you're supporting them, Stu. And just to clarify, is it you jump on their website and it's a subscription service through there. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So you can sign up. Um, sign up, I believe, 
is going to be available from, uh, as I said, the 12th of March. You can sign up for their mailing list, get notified when the site goes live. Uh, just click on the sign up button, enter your name and email, do the little um, capture check to confirm you're not a robot, and then you're good to go. Great, I'm there. Brilliant stuff. Um, so whilst people are doing good, uh, we're also going to have a look today in the food news about our delivery, f- our food delivery services, and the quest for different countries to treat these rider riders and deliverers a lot better so we've seen recently in the uk um that we've had the companies like deliveroo and uber eats called out and they have to now essentially class these people as employees so they get some benefits they get some time so that's very very good if they're on there um and also i noticed today that deliveroo who are looking to float on the stock exchange are going to be offering bonuses and share options to their staff who've done their most deliveries so it looks like the tides are turning. People are trying to start looking for these, uh, looking after these people who, especially during a pandemic, have been a lifeline to some people to be able to get food out to them. I know, obviously, we're not suggesting people have takeaways all the time, but if someone's had a rough day and they don't want to cook, it's been fantastic. They don't have to sit. They can get this treat in. They can relax. They can enjoy it. And it's these guys, these riders, these delivery drivers who have been helping keep people going and also supporting those local businesses, supporting those local takeaways by being part of these companies and having these deliveries. But it's now spread not only from the UK, but it's now reached Italy. So Italy's basically gone into the courts and they're ordering their food delivery companies to treat cyclists and the scooterists better. And in Italy, a majority of them are on bikes. So again, great for the environment rather than having cars or vans going to deliver things. But I was looking at some of the figures at how much the riders earn per delivery at the moment uh, in Italy, and it's four euros per delivery. Now, if you're thinking that by the time they've cycled there, paid tax on all of that, it's 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 next to nothing, and the fact they've got no no rights, and that's the average. A lot of the research from um, the Italian prosecutors has seen that most of these delivery drivers are are immigrants and some of the reports come out suggest that they're they're treated essentially as a slave labor so it's really good that a lot of these companies are starting to look into the welfare of these delivery drivers because things like uber eats uh delivery just eat i know where where we're based we don't have much of that but i know obviously in london where you've got these people who and it is a bread and butter it's a great lifeline for them especially during a pandemic where people can go and work and supplement their incomes it's been fantastic to have it but like anything, as long as they're protected, as long as they're employees, as long as they've got rights, they're not taken advantage of. And it's really nice to see that governments around the world are starting to take a bit more of a strict view on how these drivers' rights are. Yeah, that's really good. Power to the people. I hope that all works out well for them. I'd imagine, uh, I don't know if this is true, but the food companies have done very well out of the pandemic, uh, in a sense. Uh, one of the companies has probably done, perhaps, uh, you know, benefit from the pandemic in a way so hopefully they can come to an agreement where these people are treated better and get paid the money that they deserve and, and again just to give you uh, a rough idea of course the four big delivery companies in italy they have sixty thousand riders using either bikes or scooters and they currently don't have any contract pension holiday sick leave or accident coverage because the number of people can you imagine sort of cycling around milan and having people just fly around everywhere. It's it's not safe in, in some places to do it. So, again, it's it's good that they're they're getting there. 
And my final piece of food news, not that I seem to troll the uh, Cadbury uh, news icons like we had with the other day, like the other week about <laughs> the Easter house. Are you a fan of caramel chocolate, Matt? I am. Yes, Stu. Do you remember uh, when we were young chefs, young cooks, young food <laughs> enthusiasts? <laughs> yes. Well, when I couldn't uh, spread butter on a piece of toast. <laughs> That's the one. So we would always go to a chocolate bar. <laughs> do you remember the concept of a caramac bar? I do. I must admit I wasn't a fan. Well, don't worry. I can bring back that childhood nostalgia for you with that good news. <laughs> I mean, I love Caramac. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, some of you who are fans of chocolate, especially the Cadbury brand, um, there's a flavour in Australia and New Zealand called Caramilk, which again is similar to the Caramac bar. Um, you can still get them in the UK, but they're normally quite expensive because obviously import on cost a lot. But it looks like in the summer, Caramilk will be hitting our UK shores I like caramel chocolate. I am looking forward to sampling. So I've never had a Cadbury's one. I've seen the Caramac bars, but I like caramel chocolate. And I like the fact it just looks like a gold bar. Now, when you said caramel chocolate, I assumed you meant a Cadbury's caramel with the caramel in the middle, which I do like. Oh. So oh, that's yes. what I was thinking of. Um, but Caramac, I was never a fan of. But it's not because I didn't dislike it. It's just because I didn't really have it or get it. So... This summer, I'll be trying a caramilk. Excellent. So, yeah, hopefully that's going to come over. And um, with my uh, imp- uh, my colleagues, uh, with my global team that I work with in my day job, um, some of those guys are based in Australia and New Zealand. So I will be speaking to them this evening when I have my weekly Teams call with them. <laughs> and I'm going to say, guys, is caramilk a legit thing? Is this, Or is someone just marketed <laughs> the daylights out of me and it's actually not in Australia and New Zealand? I've just been bought into an advert by Cadbury. Uh, I see you hitting the important subjects in your work meeting as well, Stu. That's very good. Uh, no professionals. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, you don't have to send me caramel anymore. Through <laughs> 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 but then, then you'd start looking at, hopefully they're going to obviously be um, preparing this process and this in the UK. Because as you said, imagine the carbon footprint on importing a chocolate bar from New Zealand. Oh, that's a good point. So is it being, it's been being produced here as well as being sold here? Is that right? My understanding bit. is that it's going to be launched here in the UK, so it's going to be right. built and developed and made from 100% sustainably sourced cocoa, according to uh, oh, what I've read in good. Cadbury. So that's at least a positive. Excellent. Uh, just speaking of um, CO2E, um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about food labelling later, so we'll talk about that more then. But the something I noticed this week whilst doing my research is that now products have a CO2E... Um, advisory label on on their on their products so not everyone's doing it but i did notice on flora's uh vegetable butter they had it and it just kind of gives you a estimation of how much co2e went into the production of that per 100 gram i think it was so this particular butter was 0.5 kg per 100 gram which doesn't really mean a lot to many people uh even myself who's been doing a bit of research on this so i actually looked up and i think that's translates to three miles in a in an average car um so just whilst we're talking about that briefly i just thought i'd bring that up because i thought it's quite an interesting uh thing to keep an eye out for in the future yeah i i'd not noticed that appearing on any of my products but if that's going to become one things and as you said we'll talk about it later in uh, in the pod 
especially with the potentially the traffic light system spoiler alert everyone possibly changing in the future mm-hmm. if co2 e is going to be brought into that to become one of the staples of it so that's going to be i'm looking forward to hearing about your research a bit later on but moving on to some more research tell me about your experience the first time you tried cowl when you were in the beautiful beautiful country of wales yeah, so we were, to- well, Amy and I were talking about this the other day, just to refresh my memory, and we had a meal in a restaurant in Tembe, which is a lovely seaside town on the coast of Wales, uh, down in the south, and again, if you do ever get the chance uh, to visit there, dear listener, then please do take the opportunity, it's very nice. Uh, we actually went to a brewery tour on the during the day. And I love a brewery tour. I love a, a distillery tour as well. I haven't done too many vineyard tours, so uh, that's one to kind of do in the future. But we went on a brewery tour. I can't remember the name of the brewery off the top of my head, unfortunately. But it was a um, really lovely tour. And then we actually went into the pub restaurant afterwards. Uh, by chance, it happened uh, to turn out that way. We actually went away for a while. We uh, sort of went to a few different pubs looking for somewhere nice to eat. And then we happened across this one, which actually is linked to the brewery and was on the, the back of the brewery that we'd just been in earlier. So that was just a happy coincidence, really. Um, so the as quite often is the case with the food, it was certainly heightened by the experience of the atmosphere in the pub and being on holiday, um, being with good friends as well. So uh, Mark, my uh, Amy and I is a good friend from university when we went to university in Nottingham Trent and his now wife as well Louise um, we were visiting uh, just over a year ago now in February of last year so the food is very nice and again heightened by the experience and so why I chose this dish was partly because it was St David's Day but also just to see if we could maybe replicate that taste in the kitchen um, how about you, Stu? What was your thoughts going into this? I was excited because I'd not cooked with lamb's neck before. So it's going to be a new type of meat for me to... Well, obviously, we've all had lamb before, uh, unless you're a vegetarian, which is, you know, I just shouldn't make such blanket statements. <laughs> um, but I'd never cooked using lamb's neck before. I liked the concept that I had to contact my local butcher and say, hello. And the, even the butcher's case of, ah, lamb's neck, excellent. We don't sell much of this. No problem. And again, it's, it's, I wouldn't even, you know, it's, it's a part of the lamb that I don't think many people would cook with unless they're, again, going out of their way to specifically do a dish where it is the requirement for it. I also like the fact that you kindly um, included a dish where one of the key ingredients to serve it with was cheese. But we will get to my, my yes. cheese issues a bit later on as we go through this. But my wife uh, went to university in Wales. She went to the University of Cardiff and she was quite excited to have this because, again, as you said, having cowl when she was there, it was one of the staples of, you know, this is fantastic around sort of some of the pubs and local villages that she would go to uh, when she was younger. So I was like, brilliant. Let's see if I can reenact part of your university life where life was better when we didn't have children. Go <laughs> <laughs> uh, on. So, um, yeah, get, get, sourcing the meat was very straightforward for me. Um, other than the meat, all of the ingredients uh, were, you know, staples what we'd have in the household. 
as 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 normal really you know i i think that it's not an overly complicated uh dish to make it's just more of a case of that you've got to make sure that you pay attention and follow the timings yeah indeed um with the with the recipe with the ingredients very simple and i actually looked into the history of of this dish as well a little bit so i'll give you a little bit of background and it sort of just delve into where it came from and you know it's part of the reasoning behind the, the ingredients as well so uh cowl not cool as i've been calling it uh it actually dates back to the 11th century they believe and is considered to be the national dish of wales uh, as is quite often the case uh, with these sorts of dishes it was invented as a way to use up meat and veg uh, that was getting towards being past its best uh, or to even make use of meat and veg that had been left over from other meals so love food hate waste would approve of this dish i'm sure um the dish was traditionally cooked over several hours in a large iron pot which would take place during the day and it would be ready for uh, farm workers to eat when they return from a day in the fields uh, amongst the variety of uh, root veg as you mentioned there stew easily accessible uh, the ingredients traditionally included lamb although other meats were used as well and tall onions aka leeks which is widely considered to be the national emblem of Wales. Um, speaking of national emblems, if you're like me, Stu, I'm sure you're happy to see the return of daffodils in the gardens and uh, grass veggies, uh, verges. Beautiful. It, it just you know you know better times are coming when you start seeing those daffodils open up. Absolutely. So the daffodil is a sign of spring, uh, but according to Wales.com, the origins of the national flower of Wales appears to be as an attractive uh, interloper introduced in the, during the 19th century as a replacement for the humble leek. David Lloyd George, who is the only Welshman to serve as Prime Minister in the UK, uh, was a public advocate for the narcissist, which is the scientific name for the daffodil. And it appears in early spring as a symbol of nature's optimism uh, and which neatly coincides with St. David's Day, which occurs on March the 1st each year. Now, the cowl recipe that we cooked this week, and we're about to discuss further, actually appears on the Jamie Oliver website, and is apparently Michael Sheen's traditional Welsh cowl, uh, which is described as a total Welsh classic, a traditional dish which reminds Michael of his grandmother's homely cooking. Now, Stu, do you know much about Michael Sheen's grandmother? Uh, I heard she made an excellent cow. <laughs> <laughs> and she also was a pretty good at the 150 dash. Yep, that's it. Absolutely, that's the one. Uh, yeah, Mrs Sheen, thank you very much for this lovely recipe because without too many spoilers, it was delicious. Uh, so, firstly, you talked a little bit about sourcing the lamb. Um, so you didn't have too many difficulties getting the ingredients required because the veg was fairly easily accessible, kind of all local sort of produced uh, vegetables. Um, myself, I managed to get the lamb's neck, no problem from my local butchers, which uh, assumably they probably wouldn't sell in our local sort of supermarkets really, but butchers were very, I think, as you said, almost quite keen to kind of have someone who wants to buy it uh, rather than it going to waste. Um, out of interest, do you, do you remember how much yours cost? We don't normally talk about money side of things too much, um, 
but mine came in a little bit more expensive than I thought it might do. But then having said that, it was a kilogram worth of meat. So um, mine cost £12. Yeah, it's uh, mine's around the same price. So I made half portions of this because I knew that we've got quite a few dishes and bits in the freezer already lined up for the next few weeks. So I didn't want to overdo it. So I went for half quantity. So, But I like lamb, so I, I might have got an extra ring that I needed. So... Um, <laughs> Mine came for at £5.30 for just under 600 grams of lamb's neck. But the thing my butcher said to me, so the recipe and the ingredient, the recipe told us that we needed to have one kilogram of lamb neck bone in, cut into five centimetre chunks and to ask your butcher to cut it into chunks. My butcher would only give it to me in the rings. They wouldn't cut it into chunks for me from the bone. Did you get yours in chunks or did yours come in rings? It, they cut it into... Um five centimetres, five centimetre rings as suggested. So did yours come in one big piece then? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so I had to actually, I'm quite lucky because prior to the pandemic last year, one of my Christmas gifts was going to be a butchery course um, at the Butchers of Brogdale. Nice. So I luckily, being like all the gear, none of the idea, I have quite a nice uh, butcher's block that I have from years and years and years ago and I also have quite a sharp meat cleaver so I was able to get mine done and diced now I don't know if it's because um I either there was a confusion over the over the phone line because the butcher's phone line seemed to be quite a bit uh, crackly so I don't know if that's where it went wrong but I had the tools to be able to do it into those those chunks into those rings but yeah it was a bit of uh bit of muscle work but uh, you know i'm going to be chopping up a swede which is the worst vegetable to cut up (laughs) isn't it just yeah that's really awkward um i wish and i don't know if you know where your lamb was sourced from but i wish i asked the butcher where the lamb was sourced from because i'm interested to know if it's uk or even new zealand because a lot of our lamb is imported from new zealand so I, i don't know if you know where yours came from no, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. I know my local butchers is very, very pro locally sourced, local farmed bits. But what I'm going to do is next. I've got to go in there at the weekend because I'll be cooking. I'm cooking a a pork roast this weekend for Mother's Day for my wife and my daughter. So I'll go in there and go that lamb's neck. Where was it sourced from? So hopefully, if I remember to do that, I'll let us know next week. Yeah, it's a good idea. I'm going to start interviewing people that I'm buying food from, sort of Greg Wallace style. I think in the future, <laughs> get as much information as I possibly can out of them. Um, uh, talking of difficult ingredients, I had trouble sourcing kafili cheese. I couldn't find it anywhere. Now, I was only looking in supermarkets, so maybe if I'd gone to a specialist um, place where I could get cheese from, I may have had more luck. Unfortunately, I didn't find any. Did you get on okay finding kafili cheese? No. This was, this was the downside. So, again, when picking up my, my lamb's neck at my farm shop, they have a very good cheese counter. And when I went over and said, do you have any kafili? And they said, no. And then we went into a nice, uh, I, I love my cheese counter. And obviously I love talking about cheese. So we went into quite a long, quite exciting, quite enthusiastic discussion about what would be the next best thing to try and replace the crumbly but tangy nature of a kafili cheese. And then myself and the cheesemonger agreed after the five minutes discussion with my daughter looking really disinterested <laughs> and my levels of excitement um, of going for a Winterdale Shaw to go with it instead so as long as it's got a bit of tang a bit of crumble that was our our approach to have it so you'd be able to have that complement the um 
the dish. So that's what cheese I went for to go with it. But again, couldn't achieve it. And again, I, I don't understand why, because I did say to him, the cheese, and I said, you've normally got kafili here. And he said, we're having real trouble sourcing it at the moment. But I, And I said, do you know why? And he said, no, I just can't get it. Oh, that's really interesting. I wonder why. Maybe that's why I haven't seen it in shops either. Because it's one of those, uh, in the back of my mind, I kind of think it's fairly readily available. But um, maybe there is a, an issue sourcing it on a larger scale as well. So, okay, so ingredients, okay to get hold of. Bit of issue with cheese. I actually used cheddar cheese in the end. Not very inventive, but it did the job. Uh, how was it to eat for you guys? Did you enjoy it? I, I, I certainly enjoyed it. I enjoyed a portion on the day and I enjoyed a portion after letting it, per my wife's words, fester for a couple of days. I love that terminology, I, by the way. I've started using that. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> and it, it was delicious. I, I think the, the best part of the cooking process for me, though, was actually getting, like, I... When I got the uh, stripping the meat off the bone, it was something very, very satisfying. It was quite fatty on the outside of some of uh, some of mine, so I did cut quite a bit of the fat element away. Left some in, obviously, for for the broth, but cut mm. quite a bit of the fat away. But there's something quite satisfying about trying to push it around, like the the neck bone and pulling it out, making sure you get most of it. So I I really enjoyed that element of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some people would find it frustrating, <laughs> but I found it quite good fun. Possibly. Uh yeah, I didn't mind the process. Again, mine was quite fatty, so I I did leave some on again for the flavour. Um, interestingly, my my wife Amy is going to be taking the bones in. So she she works at a college as a uh, lecturer in animal biology. So she's actually going to once we strip the bones right back through uh, a boiling process. She's actually going to take the bones in um, as part of her biology class to get the kids to. Uh, one ID what part of the body the bone is from um, but to also try to guess where the bone came from in terms of what type of animal uh, so a little side note there but as you said we we allowed the soup to fester overnight so the next day the fat is kind of settled on top I don't know if it's the same for you as well but yeah. there's like a layer of fat on top of the soup which um in all honesty looked a bit gnarly i thought but <laughs> but this is the process of letting it sit overnight where it helps the flavors to develop and improve um and it would have ultimately added to the eating experience and by the time you warm it up and heat it through correctly that fat obviously melts and dissipates into the into the broth uh, which again um allows the flavor to develop um how did you find the reheating process and you know did you said you enjoyed it and something I'm always interested in did Harriet give it a go she didn't give this one a go in fairness she dipped some of the homemade bread into it because this is why we as we mentioned at the start of the podcast we made the bread to dip into um our our cowl she did dip it in she was she was okay of it she would pick out the odd carrot here or there but she was very keen quite hell-bent that day saying well daddy if you're having soup i want tomato soup in this case oh come on this is better <laughs> but well, you can't go wrong with a tomato soup though that's that's the good option no so so we sat down we had me and my wife had this um on the first day um so pre-festering so we had a bowl pre-fester with harriet and uh, she had her tomato soup and i said she tried a little bit wasn't 
a fan. I think it's because she knows onions in it and she's really anti-onion. I said, but it's only one whole, well, in my case, one half onion that's mm-hmm. gone in just to sit there. It's like, no, it's got onion in it. Yeah, because when we had a shepherd's pie the other night and we grated the onion into it so she didn't know it was there, she ate the whole thing. Uh, ah, she lies, <laughs> silly <laughs> three-year-old. She does like onion. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but as you said, we left it for the the second portion and we had it a couple of days later because um, I, I grew up with, again, mainly things like chicken broth. So my mum would take the carcass of whatever food we had and we'd just leave it in a pot with vegetables and, again, fester for a number of days. You just keep reheating and, and go and go and go. So I'm very familiar from my standpoint of reheating the food. Sl- always slowly get it done. Yeah. But the flavour on the second day, I mean, the first day was brilliant, but the second day, something out of this world. Something, as you said, with the fat, the layer of fat that forms on the top and then melts in. Absolutely delicious. Really, really good. Yeah, I didn't actually have it pre-fested, if you like. So I had it the, the next day. I allowed it to process with the sit-in process and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I didn't get the experience of tasting it before. Now, with the with the consistency of the soup, the, the broth is quite thin just by the nature that the vegetables aren't chopped up into it or mashed up into it, which if you prefer like a thick soup without the obvious chunks of vegetables, this might not be for you particularly, uh, listener at home. But for me personally, I enjoyed the, the bite of the veg in the dish, um, which really complemented the fine if, if you if you're lucky enough to find a bit of lamb as well so if you kind of get that mixture plus a little bit of melted stringy cheese all of that combined uh just as you said was really delicious really enjoyable to eat how did leanne find it compared to what she would have had at university she said it was definitely the flavors that she would remember and considering that the only real difference in flavor that you'd normally get would be from the lamb neck and then leaving it to, to settle um it's incredible how something so basic something so basic can be so delicious because again you're only seasoning it with, with black pepper and then the, the cheese at the end but really you've just got onion swede carrots parsnip potato leek lamb yeah all in all in a bowl cooked slowly yeah i it was incredible i was always concerned in fact i said to amy i'm not sure if this is going to taste of anything because there's no nothing else that goes into it other than the the veg and the meat but all the flavors come out of the the combination of all of that and like say a little bit of salt and pepper but there's no additional stock added there's no additional herbs added it is as it is but that sort of slow process of cooking and again letting it fester overnight really just develops the flavor and it turns into something beautiful. So portion-wise, I was very happy with it. We had it on the Saturday evening, uh, the, the day after I cooked the dish. Uh, plus, we had some on Sunday as well with my failed attempt to make bread. Um, and Amy <laughs> and Amy took some to work on Monday. And so really happy portion-wise. And actually, I was able to then use the remaining uh bones and some of the flesh that's still attached to make a uh, lamb's broth as well so which i just will i've used i actually used in the uh, classic shepherd's pie yesterday not strictly being vegetarian or vegan i had no you know problem with that so rather than using a pre-made uh, stock i actually used this uh, this lamb stock in my 
uh, Shepherd's Pilot I had yesterday, which, um, again, I said earlier, I, I certainly preferred this version that I made, sort of concocted myself based on their suggestions and um, my own sort of taste as well. Um, and it may be partly because of the, the stock that went into it made from the, the lamb bones. Now, something we always touch on it towards the end now is we enjoyed it. Well, we made it, we enjoyed it. And next up, would you make it again? And if so, would you make any changes? I'd definitely make it again and I'd make no changes whatsoever. I I'm probably would make this more in an autumn into winter dish. If you're going to be trying to make this in the summer, the kitchen's going to get very hot and you're not really going to want this really warming, warming cowl at that time of year. But the fact is that the cost of this dish per portion. So I thought that I think you're looking at about maybe £1.20, £1.30 per portion um, when you're serving this up, excluding the cheese and the bread. And it's so filling for something that's so simple to do. It's a little bit time consuming. And as I said, you can eat this straight away. Even the recipe says you can eat it straight away. It's certainly, I wouldn't say you're going to be hindered if you eat it straight away. But this is the sort of thing that we mentioned that we want to have dishes where people can make these and have them as a midweek dinner or a midweek lunch or something like that. While this is long to process, if you're just going to leave it on the hob over overnight, over a couple of days, you should reheat it whenever you need it. So you can come home from work, heat this up sort of slowly for 10 minutes, and you've got a delicious filling, very good for you dinner. So obviously, again, from a... Uh, a content standpoint based on sort of the uh, the Jamie Oliver sort of nutritional value you're looking at about 379 calories a portion but it's also got 28.1 grams of protein in it which is 56% of your recommended daily intake wow. in just one dish so you've knocked over half of your protein requirements in that day that's fantastic isn't it that's really good uh, so from a personal point of view I would like to think that I'd make this dish again at some point. Having said that, I don't think cowl will necessarily work its way into our regular weekly rotation anytime soon, just because, as you say, we are coming into spring and summer. Definitely more of a winter dish. It's actually quite co uh, cold in our house over the weekend, and Amy said to me, this is actually warming me up having this soup, so that was a real nice positive and bonus from having the dish as well. Um, the beauty of broths and soups such as coal or cowl, sorry, is that they are really easy to and inexpensive to make as well. So once you get the grasp of how to make one, they're really they're super simple. So you can kind of make a cowl or a variation of cowl, um, super easy. So by the sounds of things, Stu, this week's recipe was a big success. Big success. Um, and if you want to try this recipe, again, follow us on our social media platforms at That Food Pod. Uh, the recipe's up there, and again, we'll share it again when we release um, this episode of the podcast as well. Don't feel that you have to use lamb neck. I think that it's, the, the neck and the bone does add something to it, but if you can't get to a butcher's, it's not near you, and obviously you've got travel restrictions at the moment, any lamb, and as, as Matt said earlier, there are different meats you can throw into cow, so give it a try. If you're trying to get um, people to eat more vegetables as well. This is a great way to do it because of the flavour of the meat just goes through those vegetables. It's warming, it's wholesome, and you, know, you knock out your five a day pretty much in this dinner. 
Yep, absolutely. And you mentioned nutrition earlier, Stu, so the protein that went into the, the dish. So just moving on, I thought we'd look at some more nutritional information. Uh, so last week uh, in episode five of, of that food podcast, we looked at a few common food terms such as low fat, uh, no added sugar and superfood, and what they meant and how they used in food marketing. If you missed that episode, take a look at our archives, which are available now on all good uh, podcast platforms. So go check that out. But sticking with that food labeling theme, Stu, um, I thought we'd take a look at the traffic light system. Now, traffic light system, I don't know if you've noticed this at all, Stu, on the front of uh, food packaging. Have you ever used it? Have you noticed it's there? Have you ever used it to inform your decisions when buying products? I'm certainly aware of it. And when it comes to the traffic light system, I tend to mainly focus still on the, the calorie intake. I know, obviously, if you're going to pick anything up and it's going to be largely red, you know it's a treat. It's an occasion. But I think it's important, as you said, especially things like breakfast cereals, when you actually look at the traffic light system on them, my f personal viewpoint is the traffic light system is good, uh, but you've then got to read the small print above it. What portion size is it including? So obviously a traffic light system, as you said, for cereal, it might say, oh, per 20 grams, when it's suggested portion size is 45 grams. So you're only getting half the story in the traffic light system. I think it's useful for those who don't spend much time looking at food or into it, especially if you've got uh, people who are rushing through shopping, they've either had a busy day at work and they're grabbing things. It just makes people a little bit more aware of what they're putting in their baskets and their trolleys. Yes, that's it. It's, a, it's information at a quick glance. So people can see that information and it's pretty straightforward really. So I'll go into kind of what it means and what it's trying to draw your attention to. But just to backstep slightly, um, you know, learning how to interpret food labels is an essential tool for anyone who's trying to um, perhaps lose weight or just to have better nutritional content in their food. Um, so today I'm just going to delve a little deeper into the front of pack nutrition labels uh, or the neatly acronymed FOPNL or FOPNL, uh, specifically in this case, the traffic light system. So you were saying, Stu, that you, you, you know it's there, you sort of use it may see it the red would perhaps indicate a treat or or uh, uh, sort of bad for you I guess really uh, depending on which way you look at it uh, so it came about in 2013 this system uh, at the recommendation of the EU that all countries within the EU should implement some sort of uh, labeling system to advise people what nutrition is in a um, in a food product. Uh, so it should be something at a glance. So on the back of a packaging, you quite often have the nutritional information, which is a bit more labored, a bit more information in there. But this is designed to be at a glance for people where it's really easy to see based on a color coding system. So in 2013, UK health ministers recommended the voluntary uh, multiple traffic light labeling system, a, which is a color coded system which shows at a glance, again, whether a product is high uh, medium or low in fat, saturated fat, salt and sugars. Now, high is labelled as red, medium is labelled as amber and low is labelled as green. So 
really, in theory, super simple to be able to look at. And the more green you have, the more healthy it's going to be. The more red you have, the less healthy it's going to be. So nice and simple. However, it doesn't always tell the true story or the whole story. Like you say, Stu, this is quite often based on a serving suggestion. suggestion. So, for example, 20 or 30 grams of cereal um, may not be how much you actually have in reality. So a bowl of cereal full to the brim may be double that. So actually, when you think about it a bit more, you're probably having to double those figures anyway. Now, it is a really nice system and it's, you know, put in with best intentions. But the scheme has been going on for seven years now. And actually in response to the health concerns over coronavirus and how that links with obesity as well, last year, Boris Johnson launched a initiative to look into uh, an alternative system. So whilst today was going to be me talking about you know, how to read these traffic light systems, it's actually not too much of a point to be able to labor on because you look at the details, red's, good, uh, red's bad, green's bad, uh, good. So what with it changing, I thought I'd just touch on this a little bit. So as I said, last year, Boris Johnson sort of raised this initiative to be able to look into alternatives. Out of the many new labels implemented in 2013 in other countries, the British government have actually selected two FOPNLs to be considered uh, with further consultation. These, nutri these labels have come from France and Chile. So the first one is a Nutri-Score label, which is originated from France, and then a Warning label, which has originated from Chile. The Nutri-Score label is a label that converts the nutritional value of a product into one of five letters and a corresponding color. So ranging from A or for best nutritional quality to E for least nutritional quality as well. And that is also corresponding with a color. So A would be green and then E would be a dark orange. So again, kind of visually very easy to pick up on. Now the one in Chile is a bit more extreme perhaps. Uh, so this warning system that they've implemented uh, over the years has been dubbed as the nuclear option which is because it's heading towards the sort of images that you might see now on tobacco products, for instance. So we've all seen those images which are quite rightfully so designed to put you off the idea of smoking. I'm sure you've seen these, Stu. They're not particularly pretty to look at. No, not at all. It, it certainly it should work as an aversion tactic. But as you said, do would people want that on food? <laughs> So it's not quite as extreme as that. So as I said, it's kind of going towards that idea. So if the food product in Chile happens to be high in fat, sugar or salt or calories, then there will be a black label added to the front of a packaging shaped like a black stop sign. So a black warning sign, which you might see on, uh, on the roads. So the more uh, high fat, salt or sugar in the, in the, uh, in the product, there is the more likely there's going to be a warning sign. So in Chile, they simply have um, a black warning sign again, which will say high in salt or high in sodium, high in fat, high in calories. And the more of these attributes that the food product has, the more labels there's going to be. So this is really, really simple way of looking at things and instantly saying, 
this is bad. So the more there is, the worse it's going to be. So the future of food labeling is changing. The current system is the traffic light system that we have, which there is some concerns over some of the wording and some of the confusion over portion sizes and things like that. So whilst it has been proven to be somewhat successful with 69% of people, uh, this is according to the food um, agency, 69% of people agreeing that it does help when they're trying to make more nutritional choices. There is still a little bit of confusion. So the future of food labouring is changing, Stu, and something to keep an eye on for the future, perhaps for your uh, news segment. Yeah, and it's funny you should mention that because obviously like the consultation process, um, and, and obviously it's two very varied options looking at the French methodology and the Chilean um methodology when it's open to consultation is this going to be open to consultation in sort of people in the food industry health professionals did you note did it state anywhere who would be allowed to get involved in this consultation process yeah so the document i read is a joint venture with um interested parties so it'd be the uh, food agency it will be the national government it will be other food agencies such as uh, supermarkets as well, food suppliers, food chain suppliers. So it will be looked at uh, holistically. So hopefully it will be well informed. And as good as the current system has been to a certain extent, again, there are loopholes or confusion over it. So hopefully in the future we can have some uh, something a bit more clear. Now, one of the options which I did see, which... Um, turns out not to be a great idea. I don't know if you heard about this um, a couple of years ago now, I think it was. The idea of possibly putting a kind of equivalent of the amount of exercise you might have to do if you eat this particular product. So, for example, if you eat this chocolate bar, you have to do a 20-minute hit session to kind of burn off that uh, equivalent of cal calories that you intake. Now, I read around this concept because I thought that was quite an interesting idea. And initially, I thought it was a, you know, not a bad idea either. But having kind of read a bit more about it and people's concerns over it, it wouldn't work I, to an ideal extent because actually people with eating disorders, um, this has been claimed uh, by people with eating disorders that it would trigger their um, anxieties over food. Um, and actually make that feel a lot worse for them. So it's not just about considering what might be good for people from a food intake point of view, but also from a mental health point of view and try to get that balance as well. And I, yeah, this is the, the most important thing. And it's what we've emphasised throughout on this podcast. I don't think that, you know, some of the information that we discuss and talk about healthy living, nutrition, CO2E elements it's more to make people aware. It's not meant to be a judgmental thing. And as I said, I think if you put exercise times on food, one, it's, as, as you stated, it's different for different people. Some people's metabolism will be completely different and would require maybe double the amount of time to do it. But food is something to be enjoyed and it allow people to enjoy moderation. And it, it shouldn't be, there shouldn't be people the anxiety and the perception that you've got this level of guilt instantly by buying a chocolate bar. If you're buying a chocolate bar, you're having a chocolate bar. Most people of, of an adult age are aware that if you eat 10 chocolate bars you're gonna, every single day, you're going to gain weight, you're not going to be healthy. 
and go from there. But if you're going to have a chocolate bar once a week, a couple of times a week, as long as you're including this in, in your diet, not just thinking, oh, it's just a chocolate bar, it's not going to count towards what I'm, what I'm going for, then, that then you know, go for it. But I think one of the things which, again, um, we'll get to in a second that some of our listeners have commented on uh, interaction, they've contacted us by email. The nutritional parts of the, the podcast, they, they do find it really interesting. So either they're aware of it when they get more knowledge or some of the things they're completely unaware of. So we had an email. Um, if you want to email us, it's thatfoodpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we have a listener in Virginia called Simon Dixon. He's emailed in saying how much he enjoys the um, informative element of our podcast, all the nutritional facts. And he has asked maybe in the future if we'll look into things like... Um, gym workout things those things like protein powders pre-workout the pros and cons of them the health impacts and benefits of those so it's good that people are interacting we're glad you're enjoying it and if there's a topic on food nutrition that you'd like us to cover you know get in contact with us on our social media platforms at that food podcast or email us at or email us that food podcast at gmail.com and we will happily go and do some research look into it and have a discussion about it yeah, absolutely. Thank you for getting in touch, Simon. I will endeavour to get that information gathered for you and feed that back. And again, anyone who requires any particular information, uh, let us know and we will cover it for you for sure. I think the most important thing is, as Stu touched on already, is in the bigger scheme of things to have moderation. I like healthy food. I like junk food. I like exercise. I enjoy rest days. I like alcohol but i like days when i don't drink as well uh live your life in moderation there is good information out there but try not to get too hung up on it now talking nutrition and moderation is our dish for next week going to be in any moderation or where are we at with that well i looked at the calendar and next week's episode, all being well, subject to internet and timings, etc., is going to be released on the 17th of March, which is a specific day of celebration to our friends in Ireland. Yay. St. Patrick's Day. Go- Correct. So while we are not going to be in the UK, going to be able to celebrate St. Patrick's Day in a way that people have done so in prior years pre-pandemic, I thought it'd be interesting to look at some of the food history in the Republic of Ireland and also cook using some very Irish-based materials. Now, I am wary of this dish because I f- I fear that people are going to be um, scared away from it based on one of the ingredients, but <laughs> please bear with it. And you may be scared away from it because, unfortunately, it's the return of one of your demon ingredients of a mushroom the mushroom so, oh no what have we but, got <laughs> so a little bit of background as well in a previous job i spent quite a bit of time working in ireland so i would travel over there i would work with different accountancy practices and i would fly home i'd spend most of my time in dublin but on a couple of trips i'd spend in either shannon or sometimes i'd go down to cork and one of the times uh, I, I visited Ireland, and apologies again to our Irish listeners if I'm going to butcher the name of the place, but I will do my best. I went to a place called um, Clanac- uh, sorry, Clanacilty. So Clanacilty is uh, sort of in the Munster province. Um, it's sort of southwest of Cork. 
And when I was there, um, Clonakil- uh, Clonakilty has a black pudding production factory. But don't worry, friends. I love black pudding. But today's recipe, well, the recipe of the week, is going to be white pudding and mushroom frittata. That sounds good. Uh, I'm excited by that. So we will have a bit of information. So this recipe is sourced from um, the... the Oh, my word, I apologise, Iris. This is Clonakilty um, Food Company. They're Ireland's leading black pudding producer. Um, they've shared a frittata recipe on the Black Pudding Club website. Um, as a man who loves black pudding, I have a, a cooking apron that says Stew Black Pudding King, <laughs> as I'm that much of a fan of this stuff. Um, I thought, as it's, again something that seems to make its way onto uh, breakfast plates in Ireland on a regular basis. I thought it'd be something different. And again, listener, I know people have a quite a stigma with black pudding and white pudding. Trust me, if you've never tried it before and just gone with the stigma, this recipe is a perfect introduction to having a little taster of something that's so, so delicious. So I'm not going to attempt to mention the town name uh, on this week's show because I do have a bit of a bunged up nose and I think it's only going to go wrong. So apologies if I've been kind of uh, sound like I've got a bunged up nose in today's uh, pod. However, my uh, as you know, my wife is from the northeast of England where black pudding is quite popular up there as well. So I know that she's going to be all in on this one. And from a personal point of view, it's something that I haven't made before. So I'm looking forward to given it a go um i i have tried white and black pudding in the past and i do like it i've also spent quite a bit of time in ireland as well where my sister used to live out there for uh, a few years so uh, to be able to kind of revisit those memories too um yeah all in all excellent choice thank you now be warned because i don't want to get a gripe next week so i'm going to forewarn you oh there, something. there might be a quibble stew so you need a deep base pan to cook this in. But this pan needs to be also not only be able to be put on the hob, but you also need to be able to put it in the oven. I think I need a new dish. <laughs> <laughs> so again, th- so I, I've i seen ways of cooking frittata where you cook them in the pan and then finish them off under the grill. This one, you cook the contents in the pan and you bang it in the oven for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, I have seen people, while they have used this mixture um, in a frying pan, they've transferred it into an oven-proof dish and put it in. Obviously, it's harder to get it out and cut it rather than flipping it out of a frying pan. So there are ways around it. But if you are planning on following this dish, please make sure the pan you use on your hob is suitable for going in the oven as well because I don't want to have all of our listeners melting their frying pans <laughs> because of a recipe I've selected. <laughs> Thanks for the pre-warning. Um, it's a good excuse for me to buy a uh, cast iron pot, so thank you again. I can um, kind of make an excuse to get a new kitchen gadget, so I'm looking forward to that. So tick, tick, tick. Lots of good positives here. So that's the recipe of the week. We'll post it up on our social media platforms. Um, the best place to get in touch with us is, as I said, on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at That Food Pod. Send us an email, thatfoodpodcast at gmail.com. 
If you've liked what you've heard, like, subscribe, leave us a five-star review. We've got a couple of five-star reviews, so thank you so much if you've been uh, listing those. It really helps us out. Um, and we will be back next week with white pudding and mushroom frittata. Brilliant. Thanks again for all your support so far, guys. Get in touch, stay in touch, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>